Hello, and welcome to the fairly explosive megafuck episode of Slate Money Succession, the very last episode of Slate Money Succession. It is a sad day. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I am here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hey, hey, Felix. I am here with Elizabeth Spires of media outlets, too numerous to mention, but not including ATN. Hello. (laughs) And for the very last episode of Slate Money Succession, who better to have on as our special guest than the one and only David Falkenflick. Welcome, David. Thanks, Felix. Probably many better, but delighted to be here. (laughs) You are a genuine expert, not only on media in general, but on Murdoch's in particular. Introduce yourself. Who are you? Um, I'm the guy who covers media for NPR, and I've done that for 18 years, but I've covered the Murdochs, and I've covered Fox News and various other wings of Murdochiana since 2000. And I wrote a book about uh, Rupert and and the Murdoch family that that was published back in... uh, I want to say it was 2013. It's been a bit now called wow. Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. But it wasn't, was it? Because that after <laughs> Murdoch came Logan Roy. And Logan Roy's media empire is even greater than Murdoch's because it includes the theme parks and the cruises and a TV channel, which seems to be even greater than Fox. So, so we get to immerse ourselves in the wonderful world of Waystar Royco for the last time. And... For a show where nothing happens, this was there was a lot of plot in this episode. This we had dramatic tension. We had people making momentous decisions, which actually had consequences. So, Emily, what's your? How are you feeling right now? Um, well, I'm feeling a little. It's a little bittersweet, guys, because you know we've been doing this pod for a while, and it's all about me. So feel sad about that. <laughs> but I feel like they ended it. You know, there's a lot of pressure with the television show getting the series finale right. People talk about it forever. It could like ruin the whole cast of the show. You know what I mean? Like the Seinfeld finale or whatever. This one nailed it. I think this was, it felt right. It felt right that Kendall doesn't get crowned and it gets just snatched away from him because we've seen that happen again and again throughout the series. So we know that that's what's going to happen. And it makes sense that Tom is he kissed ass enough to make it all the way to the top. And that's the quality about him that pivots him to the top. And the one thing I really want to dig in is why did Shiv, you know, knife her brother in the back? Why did she Shiv him and stay with Tom? That's sort of the intrigue to me. Elizabeth, do you have an answer to that question? Yeah, well, I I pre-grieved the end of the season, so (laughs) I I didn't, my trauma about it was, was not too bad, but... Uh, and of course, I was pleased that this driver came out on top. In terms of Shiv, though, I think the sort of the theory that I like the best is just that when they all realize that none of them are probably going to get the throne, they also can't tolerate each other getting it on any level. So I think part of her reaction to what was happening in the Boyd room was just disgust with her brothers and, you know, some pettiness a little bit. And then maybe seeing a way back into the company via Tom. And I think part of the reason why Tom gets it is because he understands the assignment from Matson. When Shiv pitches Matson on the CEO job, she says something like, well, you know, everybody's going to understand that you are pulling my strings and that's going to be the optics of it. But Tom understands that is actually what Matson wants. And so he offers to be the puppet and steps in. And literally that, that faux Vanity Fair article 
which has Lucas as the puppet, definitely framed his thinking there, right? Like, oh, that's not the optics, actually. Yeah, yeah, it took me a minute to kind of understand that he thought it was funny because Shiv does think that they're in a partnership and he doesn't read it that way at all. Mm -hmm. What the Shiv tells him in the church very explicitly, I will be your puppet. I will do whatever you tell me. But he realizes, given her background and given her sort of bullheadedness in many ways, that she's not the world's greatest puppet. And then he asks her directly about Tom. And she says, well, Tom will just suck the biggest dick in the room. And Lucas is like, well, I have the biggest dick in the room. And so why don't I just get Tom to suck my dick? Beautiful. But David, is like, tell me, like, in big media companies like this, how far can you get by sycophancy and, and sucking up to to the brass. I'm just a uh, highly interchangeable modular part in all this, and I, <laughs> I recognize my role. But uh, I would say it depends on which kind of company we're talking about a little bit. You know, you have a company that, like certain others that I've come across in my career, in which the last name is highly determinative of who's going to be at the top of the pyramid. And then it's very clear the small universe of people you need to suck up to to get to <laughs> toward the top of that pyramid. And it's also clear that there's going to be a ceiling on how far you can go, right? And the Disney company, you know, it was always clear you suck up to Michael Eisner or you suck up to Bob Iger. You know, you suck up to whoever the power is at that time. And that can screw you over if, like, Bob Chapek gets thrown over the side. Suddenly, you've bet on the wrong horse and it's, you know, it's back to Iger. That can get you pretty high, but it gets you to a kind of number two, number three position. You're an executor. You're not a visionary. The metaphor they're betting on, I mean, that's actually what Shiv says to Tom, right? Earlier in the season, she's like, do you feel like you bet on the wrong horse and your horse is now dead? But it turns out that the ass kissing is a highly transferable skill and that he can transfer his, you know, the destination of his ass kissing very easily from Logan to Matson, and he hates this hang time. I love this idea of like hangs as job interviews. We're just going to hang. We're going to go to an art gallery. We're going to hang, and I'm just going to see if the vibes are right. And it's just oh. like the most nerve wracking form <laughs> of job interview. But like weirdly, his whole awkwardness and desire to please is exactly what Matson is looking for, and it's that kind of almost Greg-like awkwardness that he has in the hangs that ends up getting him the job. But notice that at that point, it's in the context of Waco, which is no longer a dynastic enterprise. Right, exactly. Well, it kind of is. Well, yeah, yeah, we don't know. So far, as far as we know, Matson doesn't have any kids, but eventually. At this point. Can I just say, like, throughout the whole show, he has held down one job. For this company, he's been working as an executive for the company. He helped cover up the mess at Cruises, and that was a mess, but eventually it got all ironed out, right? I mean, of the options, he's the only one who's actually has experience as an executive consistently through the timeline. Yeah, I, I want to point out that it's not just the sucking up, because Matson articulates why he thinks he's fit for the job. And he says, you know, ATN's the profit center, Minkin likes you. You're talented, and I'm not looking for a partner. I'm looking for a frontman, and I need someone who can be a pain sponge. And so when Tom sort of, to the hang question, gives him what's really a very sincere answer and says, look, these are my strengths. I'm not an ideas guy. You know, he articulates without realizing it exactly what Matson wanted. 
But it's not just the sucking up, I don't think. Like, there's a great scene with Tom in one of the earlier episodes where he's angry at Logan because he realizes he's going to prison for everybody. And he takes the chicken off of Logan's plate and just eats it and puts it back on there and goes, thank you, Logan, and then walks (laughs) off. So, you know, he's capable of standing up for himself, certainly. But I I think it's not enough just to be a suck up because Greg's a suck up. Hugo's a suck up. He's not the only person who's a sycophant in succession, but he's the Mm -hmm. one who comes out on top. And also, he says in that in that hang interview, whatever we're going to call it, he says, I stay up all night worrying. And he worries about himself. But he also actually, you know, putting aside the morality of his choices and the honor of any of his choices, he's thinking about the company incessantly. Like, you don't see Logan or Roman or Shiv incessantly thinking about how to better the company. It's just, okay, I've got to make a big move. What should my big move be? You know, this is going to be it, right? Right? You know? And this is different. Like you're seeing a guy who's like, listen, I am not only an effective manager and a bloodless one, but I'm also really trying to think about how to run this thing. And that's something you almost never hear from anybody in the family. That's something you might think about Frank. Yeah. And and the way at the end that he draws a very clear distinction between Jerry on the one hand as being like this extremely competent operator who he wants inside the company versus Frank and Carl, who he sees as... Muppets and should be disposed of quickly. Like, this is something that he has clearly thought through. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. You know, I have tended to imbue in Frank a degree of competence and a degree I of, do. I of, think you're right. I think that Frank is a competent I think he's a capable CFO. corporate executive at, at that level in those things. I don't think he, you know, we can get into this later, but I do see some comparisons in the Murdoch enterprises where it's people who are at fairly senior levels who are actually pretty good at what they do. And yeah. apart from some of the heinousness that can be attached to it. I think also what may have made an impression on Madsen was the fact that Tom did not attend the funeral in the ep- the prior episode because he wanted to work. He was that devoted. And I think this because I cheated and listened to the HBO podcast this morning and <laughs> I heard Alexander Skarsgård say this. So that's where I got the idea. But still, I mean, it was a little like the funeral really was a job interview moment for everyone, clearly. So it's it's like being asked, uh, you know, what's your greatest flaw? And it says, I expect too much of myself and others. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and Tom's just proving that. I work too uh-huh. much. I work yeah. too much. And it is a victory for the striver to Elizabeth's great New York Times opinion piece from last week. So the question I have for David is, is Tom a Philippe Doman figure? Is he this kind of guy who gives good son in that wonderful phrase where he can do this extremely good job of both being a CEO and managing down while also being incredibly unthreatening to the one person who actually matters. So for listeners who haven't followed this, this is the guy who uh, was the surrogate son to Sumner Redstone at the Viacom CBS empire at a time where Redstone's daughter, Sherry, was holding her hand high up in the air and saying, not I should be the CEO, but I should be really running this company as chairwoman as her father became incompetent. I think that there is an element of that where he was a good manager down. I mean, Domain also, you know, presided over real tanking of the company's stock and devaluation of their properties, but it was more, what shall I say, managing decline badly as opposed to sort of steering them into decline, right? I mean, Felix, you may have a better sense of that than I do, but he was very good at making Sumner Redstone feel appreciated and still relevant and a familial tie there was real. There were some very tender scenes between 
Tom and Logan at times, not necessarily in both directions, that were reminiscent of Tom's relationship with Shiv. One of the arguments I would have with friends is, you know, people would say, oh, you know, Shiv this and Tom that, and they talk about the same. I always felt that Tom in some ways was, although simplest, he had one complexifier, to use Jeff Bezos' word, another billionaire media magnate's words, which was that he made himself vulnerable for love at numerous points before this last episode or two to his partner. Like he really would have been there for her if she had just been able to express love, right? And, and Logan had wrecked her for that. And she had also made choices that prevented that and precluded that. She has this interesting thing in, in this episode, right? When she's in the plane waiting to take off and she calls Tom and she basically says, listen, now that we've said all of the most terrible things we can think of to each other. Like I, I'm no longer like afraid of the underneath. So I've seen the underneath. So I've come out the other side and this means we can now interact with each other on a sort of quasi normal basis. And Tom's like, Are you, what? <laughs> um, which is like a vaguely normal reaction to this, but you can see weirdly that she's reaching out to Tom in a way and saying, I now know you. I know your flaws and you know my flaws in a way that I don't have that relationship with anyone except for my two brothers. And so now you, you know, it's almost as though he's become part of the family in that sense. I think that's right. But he's the only one who it struck me had the ability. All of them are self-defeating repeatedly, epically. The striver in Elizabeth's wonderful terms he doesn't self-defeat. Like he, he is striving. He is naked. He is at times impossible and will time stumble. But he basically figures out eyes on the prize. And initially his eyes on the prize is he wants to be loved by Shiv and in the room. And then ultimately it's on his own terms because he, every time he thinks that he's got that with her, it just proves to be, you know, quicksand. But Elizabeth, is it not the case that it is Tom in this episode who winds up getting anointed and it is Kendall who's the striver and is using every single last ounce of his being to try to get what he wants. I wouldn't use the striver term to describe what Ken's doing. He just gets increasingly desperate as things start to not go his way. And I think Tom's goals pretty much stay the same. And, and he does have some loyalty to the people who are the closest to him or that he cares about, you know, at the end, he tells Greg that he's safe, even though he's been betrayed by Greg. He tells Shiv as he's getting into the car, I'm in car 20 if you want a job. And she does get in the car with him. So I think he's fairly, Tom's very consistent. And Kendall doesn't behave like that at all. Kendall just realizes that the deck is stacked against him and starts freaking out. You know, but I don't think, I wouldn't consider that striving. I think it's just him having a freak out and, you know, losing his shit on Roman. So I, I think it's just a different different dynamic. Can we talk a little bit about betrayals? Because there's a lot of betrayal going on here. At the end of season three, of course, the grand betrayal was the way in which Tom betrayed all three of the siblings. In this episode, there are two great betrayals. One is the Judas betrayal, as Lucas Matson puts it, where Greg tells Kendall that Shiv is not going to be the CEO. And then, of course, the other one, the great the greatest of them all is, is Shiv's betrayal of her brothers. Is that a betrayal? I'd, I'd be really interested in you guys thinking about this. I was flipping this around. Like, Emily, Elizabeth, I apologize, Felix. But, like, do you consider that to be a betrayal? Well, she promised something and she went back on it, right? 
I mean, I feel like that is, that's like breathing to these people. Yeah. <laughs> like, is what she did a betrayal? I, I just want to explore that. I'm not sure where I land I, on I, that. I can guarantee you that Kendall thinks I'm sure it Kendall is. thinks that for sure. I mean, it's not the same level as, as Tom's betrayal to Shiv in the previous season, you know, when he goes behind her back and does a bunch of stuff so that they can't, you know, take control of the company and prevent the merger because she's open about it. She, right. She says, I need to, I need a minute to think. And she goes in the conference room and she tells them that she can't vote for Kendall. So I wouldn't, it's not the same kind of betrayal of the kind where you oh, go behind oh, the, their back. The other betrayal we should mention, of course, is Caroline's betrayal of the kids. Right. Uh, and, and Kendall actually turns to her and says, like, are you going to apologize for that? And she's, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> she's delightful. Where she's basically, she's like, I just want a family dinner. And it turns out her idiot husband's idiot business partner is there to pitch them, right? <laughs> a family but dinner like, of almost no food, of course. <laughs> but this is also just like remembering the timeline of all of this. Quite probably, I would say almost certainly, the first time that she has been with her three children since she betrayed them since Logan phoned her up and said, well, the funeral. I need your votes. Well, yeah, but the, yeah, but like, not just like alone with them. So Kendall is like, you totally betrayed us by casting your votes over to, to Logan. And yeah, she, I mean, she's, I mean, she's amazing. She's kind of, I think she becomes my number one favorite cam- character in the whole show in this episode. <laughs> like, <laughs> the way she talks, what's, the, what's her line about eyes? Oh, it's so great. It's, it's so good. Oh, right. I don't like to think of all these blobs of jelly running around your head. Face eggs. She calls them, yeah, face eggs. <laughs> face <laughs> eggs. <laughs> face eggs. Human eyes. <laughs> but betrayal runs through this whole show. I mean, that's the expect. That's the baseline expectation. No one trusts anyone. So the question I really want to, want to <laughs> ask here is, it's about Greg, right? When he totally goes behind Matson's back and he betrays Matson to Kendall... And comes this close to costing Tom the the CEO job. And Tom is understandably furious. And at the end, he keeps Greg on. He, like, forgives him somehow. Because why? Because he needs a pain sponge too? Yeah, he needs Greg. They have a real relationship. I mean, Felix, you shared the TikTok video of their warm relationship <laughs> over the years and the, the love Taylor between Swift, them. Swift one. We're going to have to try and link that in the in the comments. It's amazing. Yeah. Also, Greg's had a similar arc. You know, he is part of the Rory family, but he's always outside the room and he's always boxed out of things. So, and I think Tom also does this when he experiences betrayal from people. He understands it as a sign of disrespect. They don't take him seriously. So now that he's on top, you know, I, I feel like uh, that's part of his goal to get Chiv back. He wants respect from everybody in the room. And so the only way that he could do it in the last season was to kind of betray all of them so, to demonstrate that he, you know, does have power in the room and that he is a viable contender. But with Greg, it's more like maybe it's just, you know, he projects some of himself onto Greg because neither of them were really invited in, I guess. And he seems to actually care about Greg in a kind of protective way. I think he cares about Greg much more than Greg cares about Tom. Like, if you remember, there are actually two Greg betrayals in this episode. The first one being when Greg overhears Tom learning from Shiv that Roman is in Barbados. And immediately Greg then tells Ken... And like that whole, like the person that Greg is consistently loyal to 
across the seasons is always Kendall. It's never Tom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it's a family thing. So my question for Elizabeth is, with hindsight, given how it all turned out, was Greg wrong to turn down Uncle Ewan's $5 million? Or is he actually better off this way? I think longer term, he's probably better off if we assume that Matson and Tom, you know, actually make a go of running the company because he's well-placed close to both of them. And in, at various points, he's had their trust on some level. I think he clearly is going to do better regardless because he's going to be, you know, a jester and a, a helpmeet for Tom. But, you know, he's going to actually be a senior executive at this huge company and he's going to do great even if he's just there for a few years with Tom. But Tom wants him to build on what, you know, Emily and Elizabeth were saying. It seems to me because he's amused by him, he may see a little bit of himself in him, but think, Tom think, you know, well, I'm actually capable and Greg isn't, but this is kind of fun. I can get this guy to do what I need to do. He needs somebody to execute for him too. When he didn't want to lay people off, he was too tired at ATN. You know, he had Greg sit down and, you know, stumble his way through it. And then it, it relieved Tom of that obligation. Well, he wants somebody he both trusts and owns in a sense. You know, he can flush him out at any time. The, I think owns is correct. And I think, I think you're right. I think this is actually one of Tom's weaknesses, that he does trust Greg, even though Greg has shown over and over again that he's not actually trustworthy. But, you know, in a sense, that's, there's a bit of Tomness in that, too. You know, right. he sees a guy who's also looking through the window pane, you know, at the inner core of the family. And he responds to that. And he builds on that. Matson explicitly tells Tom that he's going to need him to absorb all this pain because he's going to cut everything close to the bone. So you could sort of see him, you know, making Greg go fire everybody again <laughs> yeah. just because he's seen him do it before. And now his salary is going to get knocked down to, you know, $30,000 or whatever. So <laughs> Yeah, Logan, Logan tells Roman to fire Jerry. And yeah, it wouldn't be amazing if Tom told Greg to fire Frank and Carl. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Can we talk about the Firstborn Son thing? Because this is wild. So great. Emily. Yes. Do you think that Roman and Kendall are actually Logan's kids? What? <laughs> well, isn't that what they had the big fight about? No. They had a fight about Kendall's kids that... Kendall has one adopted child and I guess the other, his wife's, you know, they got donated sperm or something. So the two children aren't genetically linked to Kendall. And I guess. Oh, I see. And so, and so basically Kendall is the end of the bloodline. Right. And Logan didn't consider the grandchildren, quote unquote, real 
while Shiv has a you know her own baby in there. Shiv has a real grandchild, but of course Logan never knew that existed. Yeah, and then Kendall tries to rip Roman's face off, thus ensuring that Shiv will not be voting for him because he beclowns himself. Also, he tries to like assault Shivon, and Roman suddenly yeah. in the middle of all of this comes to. Shiv's defense and he's like come on you can't hit her she's pregnant yeah I feel like he loses both of them obviously in that fight he beclowns himself and it's clear that he should not be running anything I mean he's the final shot of the final episode right him completely alone well not well mostly alone except for Colin is like 10 feet behind him just like his dad just like his dad just as alone as father. His whole arc this season has really been isolating himself you know from his kids He, he chose Mencken over his children and then Jess his assistant his loyal assistant that caused her to leave him so now he's like all alone he sacrificed everything because he wanted this one thing his dad promised him in a candy store or something when he was seven literally a candy store yeah that was his true purpose in life above everything else and he didn't get it and every season he's been trying to become CEO failing each time getting almost he almost gets it every time where you're like you kind of believe like, oh, well, maybe this I believed coming in. I was like, maybe he'll get it. Like he could. He did that speech, life living plus like he, he's doing great. When he yells, I'm the eldest boy. <laughs> and then you realize actually Connor's the eldest boy. Well, they yeah. had that fight, right? With Connor. Yeah. I'm the eldest boy. <laughs> yeah. I actually felt in that scene in the glass room off the boardroom that he lost them just before they talked about bloodlines. He, he lost them when she said, well, you killed someone. Mm. Siobhan says that to Kendall. And he says, no, I didn't. And at that point where they're like, oh, look, we can get through the idea maybe that you killed somebody. And I couldn't 100% tell whether she was just jabbing at him to get him at his worst vulnerability or whether she was saying, look, at the moment of truth and pressure, you panicked when somebody's life was on the line and I can't put the hands of a company in your hands. Looking at that boardroom, realizing the enormity of the of your character, and I mean that in both senses, you know, like she couldn't do it or she's just jabbing. But when he says, I didn't kill somebody, they're like, oh, no, fuck it. You know, we're done here. You are denying a human being's life mm-hmm. and you took it. You mm-hmm. don't get to do both those things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then when it comes in the bloodline thing, they're like, you know what? Dad says all kinds of things. If you want to make it this sort of pure Anglo-Saxon royalty coming down through the generations, it's going to stop with you anyway and go somewhere else if it's a bloodline thing. So forget <laughs> you. You know, like I think they just were throwing that in at that point. Yeah. That, yeah. That's exactly right. I buy that. Yeah. Well, also, there's a great part where, uh, you know, he starts gaslighting them and saying, I didn't kill anyone. That didn't happen. And Roman says, so that was a move and sort of implies <laughs> it's even worse if it didn't happen. And he just made it up in the moment. He said, I false yeah. memoried it. <laughs> Roman tried to dad it at the funeral and he false memoried it you know, when he's talking about somebody else's death. How low can he debase himself, basically? Because that used to make consistently through the seasons, the fact that he killed someone made him feel bad. And now he's just willing to memory hole it, to put it away, to deny it ever even happened. It's just like he's lost his soul. So it's so gone. So weirdly, it reminded me of the thing in the funeral episode, just, I mean, two episodes ago, where Shiv is trying to counsel Matson about how to deal with the two Indias problem. The fact he's made up all the traffic in India, essentially. And she's like, you just have to, you know, bury the news. This is a perfect time to do it. You've got all the tumult in the streets over the elections and you've got dad's funeral. And it's a great time to just bury it. We've got to bury the news. Meanwhile, they're burying the king of news. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. in that mo- that scene, mm-hmm. right? And it, it turns out that 
Kendall has never buried this news sufficiently. It's there in the specter of the bodyguard. Mm-hmm. It's there in his siblings with whom he was vulnerable and acknowledged this great, in a poignant, poignant, heartbreaking scene in Italy, right? Where he's mm-hmm. just sharing it all with them about his guilt and his feeling of not just complicity, but active wrong that he's inflicted on the world here. And they just, she just brings it right back up at him. And maybe she's right to do so. But it, it's, uh, you know, he hasn't buried the news. Yeah. And he really wouldn't be a good CEO. Like, we know that. I mean, no, it's true, right? And this is the <laughs> great, like, truth bomb that, that Roman delivers, right? If this is the kind of Shakespearean thing where the fool is the person you turn to to tell the truth, then it's Roman who's the true truth-telling fool in this show, not just this episode, where he just turns around and says, like, you are bullshit. I'm bullshit. She's bullshit. And, like, he says it out loud. And he knows it's true. And he knows that Kendall knows that it's true. And that is the thing that just cuts all meaning from Kendall's life and leaves him completely adrift. He says, we're nothing. We're nothing. (laughs) We're nothing. Bits of glue and broken shows. Phony news. We do have $3 billion each from Madison. But other than that, we're nothing. Right? Only in this world, you can walk away with billions and billions of dollars. And yet you've somehow lost. What? No. That's a win, if you ask me. I was thinking about that in in that amazing shot of Tom and Shiv in the back of the car at the end, where you kind of feel that there's almost some kind of equality or parity in that marriage for the first time, right? She has the money, he has the power, and like they can kind of begin to see a way to make it work. I do think that Shiv's decision ultimately to vote for the deal is a decision to vote for the father of her child rather than her brother. The episode starts with her wanting to get back together with right, him. Exactly. So, I mean, it's kind of a love story. You're not wrong, right? If Matson had chosen anyone else. <laughs> I'm not laughing at Felix. It's just when Emily says that out loud, I'm just like, oh, such It kind love. of is. I think you're both right on, on a, an important level. When Tom tells Shiv that it's him, she is furious, but then she has a couple of hours to think about it and to digest the news. And if Madsen had just chosen anyone else, Lawrence Yee, Walter guy, then she'd be like, fuck that guy. But because it's Tom, because she has that relationship with Tom, she's like, it's actually, weirdly, she's the big winner. She She's the only person who gets to have her cake and eat it, right? Right. She is proximate to power, which she would have been with, with Kendall. She doesn't have it, but she's proximate to it. And she gets the billions in the clear. Right. And that is why, actually, to be fair, I don't really consider it a betrayal. I consider it a reversal. It is felt keenly as betrayal. But if you look at Roman, whose own liberation is palpable when he realizes he votes for it, he keeps his word, he's betraying himself in doing so. This, of course, is a callback to season one, right? Where Roman is in the boardroom and when it comes around to him... Squirrels. When the pressure's on... It's his hand down. (laughs) He betrays Kendall. And, like, you know, Kendall is expecting Roman's vote and then Roman ends up voting for Logan rather than for Kendall. And when it comes around to Roman this time and Roman finally votes... Yes, I'm voting with, or if it's no, I guess I'm voting with Kendall. This is briefly like the greatest moment of Kendall's life. (laughs) Kendall, you know, his fingernails are on the brass ring at that point, and he's got the one that he was worried about, right? The thing that all of them were worried about, is Roman going to show up? Is he actually going to vote? And he does show up, and he does vote, and he votes for Kendall. And Kendall's like, oh my God, I've managed to get my brother on board. This was the thing I was worried about. He doesn't see Shiv coming. 
When Shiv suddenly gets that expression on her face and walks out of the room, Kendall is totally shocked. He wouldn't have been shocked by Rowan in the same way. Yeah, I think that's right. Though it kind of doesn't make sense because she's been on the other side the past, you know, four episodes trying to do the deal on Matson's side. So why he automatically thinks she's on his side now is sort of sus. But he's very solipsistic, right? He's not really capable of putting himself in the minds of someone else. My my favorite, I don't know if it's my favorite line in the show, but it's definitely one of my favorite lines of the episode. It's when he's calling to his assistant to organize the private jet down to Barbados. And he's like, new Jess, new Jess. New Jess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I swear to God, I thought he was saying new jets, new jets. I thank you for clarifying that for me. So can we just talk about, is what happened to Shiv in this episode, that was sexism, right? And misogyny. Like Matson says he can't deal with the mess of like being attracted to her Or, you know, he's clearly threatened by that cartoon, even though he says, oh, it's so funny. Obviously, it's not so funny. Like, that's pivotal for him. She's pregnant. I think Shiv, she wasn't nothing. She's somewhat competent, but is screwed because she's a woman in in the end, right? And she has to wind up just Tom's wife, the CEO's wife. Well, I think that's a piece of it. But he also says that he doesn't want a partner. And it's clear that she wouldn't tolerate actually being a puppet for him. Right. And I also think she, you know, she doesn't actually have any executive experience, you know, and they had talked about that at the funeral. But I I do think Emily's right that like Matson already has one girl, psychosexual bolus of gubbins Mm -hmm. going on. And the last thing he wants is another one. And, you know, to the point of the hangs, all of this time spent hanging with Tom is a job interview, which even Tom doesn't realize is what he's being interviewed for. This is just a question of Matson trying to work out who can he be comfortable with in that role. And he knows that because of all of this psychosexual bullshit with Shiv, he's never going to be able to just trust her in a way of like, I'll just tell you what to do and you're going to go off and execute you and you're not going to have your own ideas. And she's not one of the guys, right? Well, no, because like someone like Oscar... Matson hires because he trusts his advice. He doesn't want a CEO whose advice he trusts. He wants the CEO who he can just tell what to do and they will do it. I think that the edge that is her way into a rapport with Matson, which has a sort of quasi-romantic or physical charge to it, is what undoes her in his eyes. Like, he's just like, that's going to be too much of a friction and it's going to make me not clear-eyed and it's going to make her think that she's more of an equal than she is and forget all that. I think all of what you guys saying can be concurrently true. Yeah, I think it's like, it, true. You know, as a, you know, cis white guy, right, in my 50s, uh, maybe I'm not the best guy to say this, but I think it's clearly misogynistic. These are elements that should have nothing, whether or not she is pregnant, you know, he is commonly, you know, trying to indicate her pregnancy with various hand gestures Mm -hmm. and, you know, whether or not he feels that she's an attractive woman, that he feels some attraction, should have nothing to do with her relationship to the job. I think that it would be complicating for him and blurring for him in a way that a guy who's got as big an enterprise as he already has and then will have with the combined companies probably doesn't need. And I actually think Kendall would be of the three of them clearly the best of a damaged and dynastic lot to run the company. It doesn't mean I think he's the right choice to do it. But I think she's shown that she repeatedly 
always listening for whatever her father wants in a way that Tom is listening for whatever anyone wants. You know what I mean? Like she, in, she defeated them so many times. She screwed up their pitches for the Pierces to take over, you know, with the surrogate version of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Like she's she's defeated corporate interests at moments that she could have been vital to her father's uh, priorities. And and she, she, she hates Mencken. Everyone knows that she hates Mencken. And this idea of putting her in charge of ATN ultimately doesn't make sense. Meanwhile, Tom has proved that he can, you know, deliver ATN for Mencken even if he can't stand. Like, like Mencken trusts Tom and Matson says as much. Plus, Tom is is really tall. And I think if you look at most male CEOs, they are also really tall and white. So I think that was part of it too. Just going to put but that out. The there. other thing I was just, you know, I wanted to talk about a little bit about the Greg betrayal. If it was a betrayal, certainly Madison thinks he d- it was. He calls him Judas. The plan was, you know, the secret plan known only to Madison and Tom and Oscar and Carolina, who are all keep- capable of keeping a secret, was basically that there was going to be this board meeting. Shiv would vote in favor of the deal, thinking that she was going to be the CEO. And then as soon as she casts her vote, basically Matson comes along and says, oh, whoops, didn't I tell you? You're not the CEO after all. It's your soon-to-be ex-husband. And that would have just completely destroyed Shiv. That would have been like an extermination-level event for Shiv. And Shiv would have been even more empty and bereft at the end than probably Kendall even is at the end of this, this show. And... Because Greg leaks it, Shiv has those crucial couple of hours to kind of come to terms with it and to see it coming and to actually vote for it, you know, in a way that, you know, with her eyes open, without her being deluded that she's going to be the CEO. And that makes her relationship with Tom something that is now quasi-viable in the way that it would never have been if it had come as a sort of post-vote shock to her. And if you look at accounts of major turnarounds of fortunes or decisions in Fox and News Corp, in Viacom, in other things, the surprise is never the second before something happens. They're seething and livid, but they're never reacting freshly surprised on the airport tarmac, just learning of it for the first time, mm-hmm. right? They have had a few hours to go through this and to absorb and to recalibrate, even in their fury about stuff like this. and. I think Tom, in some ways, one can say forgives, but embraces Greg in part because she is of the family. She deserves to know this, really. And he's not sorry for her to have processed this before it happened, in it, 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 ultimately, but particularly by the time he plas- plasts a sticker saying, I own you, on Greg's <laughs> forehead, because it means that he can come to some sort of working accommodation, perhaps even a life with Shiv in a different way than if, if that hadn't happened. Like Greg weirdly, probably inadvertently served Tom's interest in doing that. Because Shiv can now say, I voted for this. I voted for you, Tom. Like I finally was on your side after always undercutting him and saying she doesn't care if you fire him and talking trash about him. She finally stuck up for him because she tried to get back together with him at the beginning of the episode. He was not having it, which is a first for Tom, you know, which probably made Shiv even more interested in getting back together with him because look at who her father was. So, Emily, do you take that I don't know as an I don't know or do you take it as a no? I took it as an I don't know. Like, maybe not, girl. You know, like, this, you've gone too far this time. I don't know. <laughs> well, that means it makes it sound like you think it's a not, really. 
I think it's a not, it was a not really like, and she was clearly hurt by it. And I think that even the playing field between them, she always felt like she had the upper hand. She called him a meat puppet not too long ago. Right. So yeah, this episode was a love story. It was about how Tom and Shiv repaired their marriage (laughs) through betrayal and power plays basically and humiliations. Can we also talk just very briefly about like marriages, how Willa has now completely embraced the role of actual Roy family wife. And she is just like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm tossing everything out in this house. I'm putting in the cowskin couch. And, you know, I have a play reading in six to eight months. So probably I won't even see my husband for that long, assuming he goes off <laughs> to Slovenia. Oh, don't you assume that's a setup for a divorce? I assume it's she's saying this is going to be my house and that he's going to be away. And when he returns, like we're done. Like I assume she was not setting up for the long term. I assume she was saying, I want to resume life as a human being. I went through this. I was his loving partner. We got through this. No, that's just me. It did seem like a turnaround for her because she'd been so loyal to him all season. And I was like, wow, they're really showing, showing the audience what can be done here that, that you can have a a nice marriage. I don't think, I don't think she needs to divorce him so long as she's, you know, three and a half thousand miles away from him and she's doing her plays and he's doing his ambassador thing. I don't think she she feels the need to go sure. through the divorce thing, especially given given that we know a little bit about Roy family prenups from the relationship between Tom and Shiv. You know, I don't think she would do so well in the divorce. Well, there is a, either Roman or Shiv says, oh, you know, you're is this the second week itch where you're <laughs> implying that this is some kind of separation? Yeah, Maybe Roman. not a legal one, but and it's clearly a separation, right? That's what she, that means how she's framing it. It's not like a separation separation. It's more of a like physical separation. Yeah. It's an exciting new phase. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, favorite lines. David, you have like one in particular jumped out? Well, we brought up some of them earlier, but, you know, there's the one about the uh, where Shiv calls Tom the highly interchangeable modular part and then hastens to add, but, you know, this is just how I feel. I'd say the same thing to his face. You know, <laughs> she, she, it's just absolutely vivisecting and yet, in a sense, clarifying Tom's value. She calls him competent. She says he's capable. She does that. The thing that struck me was actually one that that you guys alluded to also. When Kendall says in that, room. I think it's in the kitchen at their mother's place, Caroline's place in Barbados. Caribbean, wherever they are, Barbados. He says, uh, he fucking promised it to be promised when I was seven. Sat me down at the candy kitchen, Bridgehampton, and he fucking promised me seven years old. Like, can you imagine? And you, th- or I think initially he's basically saying, and therefore I'm it, primogenitor, which is ultimately what he sh- shouts at, at, at yeah, Shiv yeah. when she's reversed herself. But he then says, you know, that was messed up. He's like, that was wrong. This isn't what you should do to somebody. What makes Kendall 
in some ways a richer character than he even perhaps deserves to be is that at times he has this self-awareness. Like this is so late in his life and his story for him to be able to articulate that it was wrong. You know, and you see him sort of touch on it. You think in the eulogy, but then embrace the darkness. Now he's just saying, look, this was just hurtful. This screwed us. You know, when they're saying their goodbyes earlier in the season to their father because he's dying or and or dead, right? They aren't even able to articulate the right reason that they're angry at him, right? They're all saying, you know, you didn't give me approval or you didn't make it clear that I was the anointed and I'll forgive you, but I'm still angry, what have you, or I love you, but I won't forgive you for that. It's like, how about your life were a series of targeted nuclear bombs dropped on us as children that left us without love or any idea of filial support, right? Like that's actually what they should be angry about. They're angry about that with their mother, but they don't identify that question. Uh, they identify the question of he didn't give that to me, but they don't identify the fact that he destroyed that for them. And in this thing in Bridgehampton, which is such a great little detail to, to put in there that he's at my father has taken me to a confectioner's that he thinks a child would enjoy at the most privileged place I can think of in that part of the world, right? And he's telling me that I will be a great corporate chieftain, and it was wrong. And I just found that incredibly poignant. Elizabeth? My favorite was when Roman and Shiv decide that they are going to support Kendall, and Roman says, you get the bauble. Congratulations. It's haunted and cursed, and nothing will ever go right, but enjoy your bauble. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't even get it in the end. Sad. Well, which he does yeah. for about a day. <laughs> they, they are so, I mean, that's that's like the the dramatic arc of this episode, right? Which well, I was saying earlier how like there's actual drama and plot in this episode in the way that there really isn't in so many of the others and most of the others. That you do have that significant period in the sort of second act of this episode where the kids have come together and they're and you see them being happy together for the first time and they're making that you know a not crown of inedible eggshells and tobacco a meal fit for a king a meal fit for a king and and they're laughing and like and i think it's the only time that you ever see kendall like when he's when he's like laughing about roman going down on peter's cheese kendall is like making a happy joke He's not making a sarcastic joke. He's not making a mean joke. You know, he's genuinely happy about it. And then they go into Logan's apartment and they all like have a good cry over like the video of Logan being happy. And there's that period in the middle of the episode, which you, of course, you know, this being succession is not going to be like, it's not going to last, but that where they're, they're actually briefly happy for a moment. I mean, like, I think that was Jesse Armstrong going like, I can actually create a sort of feature length arc within this episode. In another creator's hands, you could see that being sort of the way it wraps up, this sort of like triumph, like the gang gets back together. I mean, that's the plot of a million movies and TV shows. Right. The gang comes together in the end, they get over all their differences, and then they have a big win. You know, in any other show, that's how this would have gone. But of course it didn't. I just want to ask you guys, since we're on this moment, is there any world in which you think that Shiv reverses as well as the Tom element, as well as the, hey, like in terms of how I come out, just logically, this is better for me, you know, money and I'm proximity to power. Is there any world where she's just there? She's the last vote. They're in that same boardroom. And she's like, we're going to fight for this just to keep doing this shit. 
Like, if they prevail, even if she's part of the fold, like, we're just going to keep doing the same shit. Right. Is there any way in which that that sort of plays in, do you 100%. think? 100%. Like, and she said as much in episode one, right, when they're talking about this whole question of do we do the 100 or do we try and buy Pierce, right? What, you know, she's basically like, haven't we bought into this idea of, like, just embracing our billions and doing something new and following our dreams rather than being tethered to this thing that Logan invented? And, yeah, I can definitely see that. Well, it's a whole different conversation about, you know, generational you know, energy, but you just see, you know, Rupert Murdoch, to to mention a person who comes up in my world a bit, you know, he wasn't the first in his line to do. No, no, he he took his dad's baby newspaper company and turned it into just a little thing, global and enormous and ended up buying, you know, 20th Century Fox. You know, he it was a big thing. It was a big thing. What these guys would be doing is kind of managing and trying to come up with deals that would allow them to present themselves to the world as in the mold of their father without having done anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they would acquire properties, they would shed properties, they would announce new philosophies or strategies, they would completely abandon them without without a flicker of or vestige of, what shall I say, echoing of what had come before. And it would just all be kind of a, an effort at mimicry. And it's, a, it's just interesting to think, see that play out. So my favorite line isn't really a line, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to successfully say this, but here we go. After two stickering perambulation circuits, (laughs) objects will be assigned to the higher sticker bidder. Where the sticker claims are tied, we move on to the tie break stickering perambulation circuit, (laughs) after which all unstickered items will be pooled and distributed in reverse alphabetical order, other than those stickered by the second tier bereaved. Do I make myself clear? (laughs) So glorious. so, Amazing and, comic relief. So, and can you the get episode. the acronyms? Oh, the FPC is the Six Stick of Relation Circuits. But yeah, no, so that was <laughs> glorious and so Connor. <laughs> And the second tier bereaved is just the most amazing the line. And then the camera pants to them. <laughs> and they're like, carry and, and like, yeah, and there's Greg. He's like, I guess I'm second tier bereaved. Also, like, Connor, like, calling the medals for himself in advance is so common. <laughs> And they don't even care. They're like, all right. You know, he just admits it and then yeah. no one because, cares. Because, yeah, there's nothing in that house that any of them actually particularly want. Right. Shiv had, they showed what she yeah, took. So it was like, like a, some pictures picture, of her, yeah. and, and, her and her dad. Yeah. You know, even Tom has like a sticker left over at the end to shove onto Greg's forehead. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> just the payoff of the stickers. And then the, why reverse alphabetical order? I think that's just an extra line. That's just Connor. <laughs> <laughs> Just wonderful. Just wonderful whimsy. I thought that there was a gentleness to their reaction to Connor, sort of a bemusement, in part because they were in a good place. Yeah. Yeah, they come off the jet. They're super happy. You know, it's a reminder that you don't need something that's tangible if you actually are sustained by love, right? You're not fighting (gasps) for something if you have something. They, in that moment, for the briefest of times, they have each other and each other's support. And there is a a realness to their bond. They, that that moment where you see Roman tear up as he's watching his father sing with the you see Kendall Frank and up. the others, yeah. and Kendall tear up. But Shiv rubs Roman's back, and Kendall puts his hand on Shiv's arm, and it seems completely without guile or intent to accomplish anything right. except to support. And that is the moment they're in, and at that time, and that's why they don't care if Connor 
he, who's already appropriated essentially buying the townhouse, like they don't, it's fine. It's fine. Like, go, no, it's like, do they're, your they're fine like, with that. And in fact, this is the one point at which Roman manages to make an executive decision when they're coming off the plane and Connor's calling them all and saying, like, I know you have a board meeting coming up, but can you just like swing by the apartment? And Siobhan and Kendall are like, what the fuck? You know, we have important shit to do. And it's Roman who brings them together and goes, to the great reallocation, let's go. <laughs> and they're like, okay, fine, Roman, we'll follow you to the great reallocation. Partly because they think that Carl and Frank are going to be there and they can, like, you know, take advantage of the opportunity to get them on board. We should also just mention the other great piece of writing in this episode, which we haven't mentioned, which was the way that Kendall managed to get Roman comfortable with the idea of voting for Kendall as CEO to take over when like, like, why would I vote for Kendall to do it when I could do it? Why can't I do it? And Roman is looking at his reflection in the, in the mirror of the drink service. And he's like, this scar on my head is not so bad. Like a CEO can totally have this scar. It's not, it doesn't disqualify me in any way. You can barely see it. And then they have that like pain hug where Kendall like shoves the scar into his shoulder and like holds it tight until it pops and, and Roman starts bleeding. Pain is kind of Roman's love language, but also having that actual literal bleeding scar on his head makes Roman feel like he's physically invisibly disqualified from the job and therefore capable of voting for his brother. Wait, Kendall did that on purpose, you think? Yes, 100%. Popped his scar? Absolutely. Yeah, that is awful. Now, I, the, the question I that had about so that awful. was, was it that it was Kendall's way of helping Roman liberate himself yes. from being in the running? Yes. Or was it Kendall saying, I can abuse you in an echo of the way Logan abused you, and therefore you will defer to my authority? I No, I think it was... I think it was... He was liberating him. Showing love to Roman in the only way that Roman can accept love, right? That in it's a fucked up way of... And you see echoes of that relationship between Roman and Jerry as well, right? That the only way you can actually get through to Roman is by abusing him and inflicting pain on him. It's like a liberation and, and Kendall thinks it's enough, but the actual liberation he needs is for them to be out of the company. He just needs to be... He's like, listen, I'm happy being on every beach in the world with uh, several billion bucks in a way that Kendall can't be. Right, exactly. At the end of the episode, Roman is sitting at the bar with his martini and he's like, he's this billionaire sitting in the bar with a martini and like, he's lost very little compared to Kendall. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, and meanwhile, Kendall is contemplating, does he want to throw himself in Hudson Bay or not? Right. <laughs> but it's a very pretty, like, sunset Hudson Bay, so probably not. My favorite line, I have to say, is the throwaway line from Tom to Matson, where he's talking about how he runs ATN. He goes, you know, I'm cutting heads and harvesting eyeballs, which is not only a great line, but is also a level of cynicism about the media business that Matson definitely has, and Tom clearly has, but I think that certainly Shiv would never have and could never talk mm. in such a way. And I think probably even Kendall couldn't, right? Like when, if you recall back to when Kendall was talking about the hundred and or what talking about like how he was going to reinvent PS News and make it more international and stuff, they all have some kind of even Roman has some kind of like political feelings, and Tom is just no. My job is to harvest eyeballs. 
that that is what news does. Red meat and tar, right? Give them the red meat and tar they want. Yeah, he articulates a kind of nihilism that we all assume that is is behind outlets like Fox News. So he says something like, "I don't think it's my place to offer dietary advice." Right. To the audience, you know, and he says if they want red meat and boiling tar, great line. I don't assume that. I don't think that Roger Ailes was a nihilist who didn't care about politics and only cared about harvesting eyeballs. I think that Roger Ailes, you know, the former Nixon aide, cared very much about politics and was a right winger to his core and wanted to build a media force to support the Republican Party. I think he cared about power, yeah, which is a little bit different. I don't. I think, but you can be value neutral and care about power. Right, I think you Murdoch, can be a nihilist. Right? And Mur- Murdoch is value neutral yeah. and cares about power and will support Tony Blair if he needs to, right? Roger Ailes would not have made that call. Roger Ailes would not have like suddenly switched Fox News around to, to support Hillary if he thought that like she was going to win. Harvesting eyeballs is very tech, very Matson. I've worked for people like that. <laughs> we just want to harvest the eyeballs. Just write it. It'll get clicks. It's fine. I mean, the f- the thing is, I-, I can't say the funny thing is, I mean, if you look at what Disney is doing at the moment, if you look at what Warner Brothers Discovery is doing at the moment, CNN, uh, you look, my shop for very different reasons. But unless there are deep cuts being made at the effort that they are desperately trying to slake and serve the audience's uh, thirsts and appetites, and it is sort of a reductive, uh, brutalist way of saying what is at the core of a lot of what's going on at the moment? And the question is, do these places stand for anything? Do they believe in what they're doing? Does Tom, you know, Tom seemed like he was on board with endorsing Mencken, but I don't think it's because he has any value belief exactly. in Mencken at all. Right. His yeah. dog is named Mondale. <laughs> <laughs> That's supposed to well, mean it something. It does mean something. So let's <laughs> bring this back into the real world, David, since you're here. This was... But no coincidence, very much timed to the great rebranding of HBO Max to Max. We all had to watch this on a brand new app. And first question for you is like, was that seamless for you? It was a little bit of a pain in the neck for me. And then I had to walk my mom through it. And it turned out by the time she did it, which was only a few days ago, they had an app or a button on her app that said download the app now. And it seamlessly came and she didn't have to enter the new password in or validate it through her Apple TV thing or whatever. I had to go through like a three or four part validation verification process. You're just too much of an early adopter. Not that early. (laughs) I was, to be honest, catching up. I I wasn't totally up to date in real time on things. So I've been having to avoid Twitter certain days of the week. (laughs) But, uh, you know, they clearly got better at it. And the anger over the Max branding has subsided as people realize that HBO lives on as its own vertical. So it's not that HBO has gone away. It's that Max wants to look a lot more like Netflix or something, or actually more like Amazon, to be honest, where you have the everything store and then within it you have a bunch of different brands so personally i attach something to the hbo brand that i attached zero to the what was cinemax and now is max brand you know the hbo max thing was always kind of a weird jumble anyway now they're just saying we're the everything store and the word max kind of stands in for that i don't like it but i at least understand it in a way that a week ago i feel that i didn't i don't like it i don't understand it (laughs) I don't, I'm not pretending to understand it. HBO is a good brand that everyone knows. And Cinemax is associated with kind of like fake porn on cable. So why lean into a brand no one cares about called Max? Why like diminish your premier brand? I'm reminded of when Nations Bank bought 
Bank of America. And they were like, we have this bland right. brand that means nothing to anyone. And Bank of America actually has a brand. So we're going to keep the Bank of America brand and actually kill the brand of the acquirer. That's the thing that makes sense. Whereas David Zaslav is doing the other way around. He's like, I just want lowest common denominator. And I'm just going to make something so bland and meaningless that no one is going to imbue any brand value into it. Let me just say one thing, which is analogous to the cable stuff, which is uh, when I got my start outside of, you know, college reporting, I worked for a summer in Charleston, South Carolina. The bank that I banked with down there was then bought by North Carolina National Bank. My first full-time job was in Durham, North Carolina. So my bank was North Carolina National Bank. Each of them separately were bought by Bank of America. I moved to the Baltimore Sun for a decade. I get Maryland National Bank. It's bought by Bank of America. At that point, I'm just like, screw it. I'm going to bank with Bank of America. <laughs> it's fine. The life is conspiring. If you look at like Max, you know, the combination of these Discovery channels and the Turner channels and HBO and Max and all all these things, it kind of feels like, you know, one of these enormous bank conglomerates that's, you know, all streamed together and they have these different little, you know, regional banks within them, but it's the same damn bank ultimately. But the reason, you know, look, I'm not a defender of this move. I think HBO is a, a fantastic brand with meaning that actually stands for something, which most brands don't, right? And the, they deliver on their brand promise pretty impressively. But I do understand that HBO is not only is it not for everybody, it's a, a friend of mine noted on Twitter yesterday today that's like, you know, like David Muir is watched by five times as many people, you know, as the host yeah, of uh, World News Tonight as watched Succession. Mm -hmm. And that's greatly diminished from back when Peter Jennings, you know, was the host of that show. So HBO is not for everybody and they're trying to get everybody into this streaming thing so they can get their payouts. So, yeah, this is the last episode of Succession. It's the last uh, it's the last episode in a way of the great pre-Zaslav HBO shows. We will see whether anything like this ever gets done again. Like, you know, I don't know. Elizabeth, do you feel like this is the very last episode of the golden age of television? Is that a risk here? No. Whoa. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. I think consumer standards are, are too high. If they don't do it, somebody else will come in and do it. There's demand for it. I don't know. The writers are on strike. We might never get another succession at this rate. Not until AI can write this well. <laughs> never. I think if Zaslav wants to lose, not just have 50% churn, but like 90% churn, they're going to have to find ways once they resolve this strike, or I guess if they don't, but they're going to have to find a way to get high level quality, you know, multi part series, multi-season series back on the air. It may have a different tone. We may be in a different age. It, it may feel differently, not or with more anti-heroes or more serious or what have you, but HBO needs these. And to be honest, I think we do too. Like think of all the kinds of things we've worked through uh, in this episode, you know, in the course of your series. Slate needs it because <laughs> if we don't have a succession recap podcast, what even are we here on this podcast? <laughs> we have loved being with you for the past three seasons. Thank you for listening loyally to every episode for those of you who have. It's been great going through it all. I am personally very sad. I know that Jasmine Molly of Seaplane Armada, who produced this show, is also very sad. But it's been awesome having this thing. We are going to come back with more special seasons. We're going to go back to the movies again with Slate Money Goes to the Movies. We might have a villain's special season. In any case, we'll be back on Saturday with another normal, regular, news-based Slate Money. And with that, I think it just 
falls to me to thank David Falkenfleck for coming on the final episode. Thank you, David. Oh my God, what an honor. And thank you for listening. Thank you.